You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And you interviewed someone yesterday. Yeah, so um, I think I've been threatening you for a while to read the book, but... Um, and know. making your debut as a broadcaster. <laughs> tell us, yes. tell us what happened. So um, I, a while ago, um, it just landed on my timeline, this book called The Gold Diggers by Sue Nyati. I don't know Sue. I never read her first book called The Polygamist. And then I ordered it and I thought, let me just see what it's about. Um, and I've made no, uh, you know, there's people know that I'm champion of um, people who aren't from the country. So initially I was drawn to the title. Uh, the Gold Diggers, um, and something Sue and I spoke about yesterday um, about the title, and usually people think, oh, blessers, blessies, but quite poignantly she writes in the book um, that people come to Johannesburg um, to dig for gold, but this particular book, it tracks um, six characters who come across who are digging for gold, whatever form that gold might take. So it really enjoyed speaking with her. I said to her afterwards, I think her and I can be friends now. <laughs> um, and yeah, this is just insights into her thinking behind writing the book. Fantastic. And she's very popular. Mm. A lot of people on social media this morning saying they're so looking forward to this interview, a pre-recorded interview with Sue Nyati about a book that has done incredibly well and continues to do so. Enjoy. So Sue, in The Gold Diggers, um, Quite an, quite an important bit for me when I read it was that you dispel this myth that our borders are so porous uh, and it's just so easy for any foreigner just to kind of hop across the border to come to South Africa. In particular, in, in Chapter 5, when you speak about the treacherous journey that the quantum takes and the people, the human cargo um, that Malusi is carrying uh, comes into South Africa. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so like you say, there is this misconception that it's, it's easy to get through. It's it's not actually easy. And, you know, people crawl under barbed wire. I'm sure you've seen the images. Yes, and um, that, that image you paint of um, of one of the, the women in Chatter almost, she had to, cut, they had to cut her hair because yeah. her hair got caught in the barbed yeah. wire. And then we have Malume, one of the characters who actually drowns in the river. So lives are lost. I mean, it's a dangerous passage. So what I think when people say it's porous, they actually mean that people actually can get through without being caught, which which does happen. So maybe that's, you know, what they're implying. But generally to get through is is, is hard. I mean, even if you're going to go through, you know, the, the normal passage of the border and you bribe your way through, I'm, I'm assuming you still have to pay. Mm. It's You know, it's not also a walk, just a walk through yeah, the park as well. Absolutely. I mean, it it. it it conjures up images of when we always see it around Easter and Christmas time of that Bitebridge border post and, and the, the queue being back, what, 10, 13 kilometers into Messina. And, yes. and this, it's just this idea that it's actually not that easy to get across here legally or illegally. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the actual decision that, that people have to take and the different characters in your book for different, different reasons decide, actually, I'm just going to pack up everything that I've ever known and try to come to South Africa to dig for this gold, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a bit about your favorite character of the book. You know, I really don't have favorites. I always think of, you know, characters like children. Mm. <laughs> you, you love them the same <laughs> and for, for different reasons. Um, because, you know, each of my characters is there for a purpose, you know, to, to tell the story. And I think each of them is important. So I, I can't say really there's a favorite. I know Marita's definitely have a favorite. Portia's mm. always come, you know, comes up as the favorite character in terms of they admire her come up, you know, from mm. how she got there and how she managed to get where she is now. 
you know. But yeah, I don't I don't have faves, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all they all, my characters are all my my people, and you know, yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I look at them. Mm-hmm. I remember when I finished reading it, I I sent you a tweet, and and I think for me, it's this idea of you humanizing this invisible mythical character of a foreign national, you know, um, undocumented foreigners or illegal immigrant or, and you actually put a human face and you rendered visible people who are often in this country just seen as invisible people, almost um, a monolith of, of what a foreign national should look like where actually people have proper real stories and they're coming to South Africa and they're coming to Johannesburg just to, try and make something out of their, their lives for whatever reasons they choose. Yes. Um, so I think I specifically wanted to tell the story of illegal immigrants because like you say, you know, people talk about them like they're just numbers, you know, and statistics. And I wanted to put a face to them. So can you imagine it's like they live in this world where say we here in this room, we are legal and they have to exist outside looking in. Okay. They, they have to be invisible because a lot of the times they don't have the documentation. So you, you live in this other world where you are subject to exploitation because you are illegal. So there are no rules that protect you because you're actually not supposed to be here. So, you know, it's, it's that, that other world that I wanted to speak to, you know, and, and like, like I, you know, in the book, it's about people who, some, who are desperate, who are just trying to make a living. They're trying to survive. Um, and the only way they know how. So sometimes the legal route isn't available to them. So they think, okay, what what can I do? Because, in, and you know, some decisions are, if I stay here, you know, it's do or die, you know. So I have to go. Whether, you know, if, if it's death there, then, you know, I, I'm just going to take a chance. And and that's, you know, that's how dangerous, you know, the the decisions, you know, the, the dangerous journey they decide to take, mm. you know, because it doesn't guarantee that it will turn out you'll have a happy ending. Hmm. And so that's what the book tries to, to show that, you know, um, the life, you know, of an immigrant is tough, especially when you're illegal. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, and this is also something that comes up often. I mean, just earlier today, um, or was it yesterday? There was a, a message on the WhatsApp group, the, the, not the WhatsApp group, the, the 702 WhatsApp line mm-hmm. where someone was speaking about, um, cause we had a caller who phoned in and I don't know if his accent was not a South African accent, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And the response on the WhatsApp line was, Oh, um, that guy must go back to his country and fix things there before mm-hmm. he comes here. And then that was followed up by, um, something aimed at Chinese nationals saying, um, you know, maybe if Chinese people stopped eating dogs and cats, they wouldn't be catching Corona. And, and I actually was compelled to respond saying, actually, this is not the platform for such. And it's such an institutionalized xenophobia in that um, we have leaders, we have political leaders who are perpetuating certain stereotypes. And, and obviously, we all are against criminality. We get that. But painting everybody with that same brush uh, is what your book is trying not to do. It's yeah. trying to show that people are desperate and... I mean, I was very lucky to spend some time in Zimbabwe over Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so I read your book last year and I reread it um, now this this past weekend just to brush up on some details. And the way you paint Zimbabwe out to be, it's this incredible country that people, things have got to a stage there where people have no choice but to come here. Yeah. And it's just, if if people just look at the people in Johannesburg CBD, for example, just just you know, wandering around trying to find work and just stop for a minute and think, well, actually, they have no choice. They didn't come here and take that treacherous journey because they felt like it mm. or wanted to steal the jobs or steal our women as some of the tropes are used. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the motivation for me writing the book was when the first xenophobic attacks broke out in Alexandra in 2008. Mm. And it was because of all these, you know, callers calling into radio stations. What are they doing here? They should go back to where they came from. You know, it's it's that rhetoric. And, you know, they, they're criminals, you know, they're here to take our jobs, our women. So for me, it was like, you know, I really can't respond to such in a tweet or in a phone call. And so I felt like I needed to explain it. And in a book, you have that leisure to explain it uninterrupted. And that's basically why I wrote this book. And it, it saddens me because, you know, like you're saying, politicians, some leaders, you know, they perpetuate this, you know, xenophobia. It's those reckless comments. It's the statistics, you know, that are often, you know, are misleading to get people thinking a certain way. And that incites xenophobia, mm. you know, and I think, you know, overall, the, the, the problem is much bigger than that. And I think people need to appreciate that, you know, um, that it's, 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 it's much bigger than that person who's in the street. And to attack that person in the street is really not fair. Mm. It's a much bigger it's a problem. It's a, a top, you know, it's a, st- a systemic thing. Mm. It's political. Mm. And I think it's time, you know, leaders, you know, actually make other leaders on the continent accountable mm. because that's how we end up where we are. Mm. And a really, really powerful part of the book without giving too much away is when one of your characters, you, you talk about the first kind of round of xenophobic attacks in 2008 and then one of your characters actually succumbs to that. And it's, it's this, this idea that here he is trying to, you know, make a life for himself and he becomes a victim. And, and the words you use, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's almost like it, it really, for me, that was one part that I, was, I almost stopped and I went, yeah, we've seen this before. We've yeah. seen the images of, you know, burning people on the front page of newspapers um you know james otway the fantastic photographer who who captured those those images of um the mozambican yes of the mozambican man so another thing that i quite enjoyed and um and what was interesting for me is this idea of you explore the tribalistic attitudes of zimbabweans from the very beginning from literally the first couple of pages Mm -hmm. uh when um, passengers in the quantum are speaking Ashona and the driver who's in Debele had a problem with that. Yeah. Is that something you've also had to navigate with, um, navigate around? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have tribalism in Zimbabwe and I'm sure you're aware, the Shona and Debele divide. And I, I, I also wanted to point out that people didn't just start moving here in, you know, when the economy got bad in Zimbabwe. Mm. A lot of Debele moved even earlier. You know, because they couldn't get opportunities because they were marginalized. So that also wanted to, to, you know, reflect that, that the migration has always been happening, but it's just, you know, the mass of migration has just increased because of the, the economic demise of, of, of Zimbabwe. So I also wanted to paint that. I mean, my, my own paternal grandfather, you know, was a migrant. He, he, he worked in the gold mines here and he would, you know, move in between Johannesburg and home, um, Plumtree. And he would go home every two years or every three years, whatever it allowed. So that, you know, um, and then, you know, he'd get home. And I always say this, he'd get my grandmother pregnant. Then he'd go back and come back. The child is three. (laughs) And this pattern would continue. And you see that pattern even with Portia and her husband. And Mm. I wanted to to capture that, that, you know, that still hasn't changed. You know, you have couples who are who live apart as a result of well, that. Well, that, yeah. that's one of my, the things I want to talk about. You say Portia Dumisani as well. I mean, we talk yes. about the breakdown of familial yes. structures. Yes. And you have, I mean, it's this joke amongst uh, my partner and my friends about you could go to Antarctica and there'll be a Zimbabwean well, we, there. They, so is that, <laughs> is that they are spread so widely across the world and, and you have 
the actual structure of a family has been completely broken down yeah, because yeah. people are just looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Violet Bolueo writes beautifully about it in We're yes. Going to Need New Names, yes. where people are, are, are missing out on family occasions, the burial of, of older family members because they just can't come back home. Yes. Yeah, and you, you, you have personal experience with that, with yeah. your, with your grandfather. Yeah. So it's, it's that tragedy that mm. I also wanted to, you know, capture as well, that people, you know, have been moving in between and it's just, the scale has just increased, but the movement was always there. Mm. And yeah, we have these, even in, in the book, Dumisani and his first wife, she ends up in the UK and, mm. you know, they, they actually get separated by circumstances, mm. you know, that he first had to come here. And things didn't work out, and then she decided, "Let me go to the UK." And then mm. eventually, while leaving the little one with her, with yeah, her mom. mom, yeah, and marriages break down, and it's it's a lived reality for many many couples. Yeah, mm. um, I'd like to read if that's okay. okay. Um, so we're in chapter nineteen, page one twenty three. Uh, Portia is our, is the character we're referring to. She had no idea how the city actually came to be christened Johannesburg, which to her seemed like an odd name. The origins of the name Johannesburg were contentious, but most accounts seem to allude to the fact that the city was named after Johannes Jubert and Johannes Rissick, men who had both been responsible for land surveying and mapping of the town. The combination of their first names led to the coining of Johannesburg, the suffix being an Afrikaans word meaning town. But whatever you wanted to call her, Egoli, Joni, Josie, Joburg, Johannesburg was undeniably one of Africa's economic powerhouses, And it is for this reason that she was able to lure people from all over the continent. All of them were gold diggers seeking fame or fortune or both. Portia had found her gold nestled amongst the long overgrown grass in Jubert Park. For the first few weeks in the city, she and Kosi had slept in the vacant seats in the bus terminal. They slept in good company with other passengers who were transiting from one city to another. Every morning they showered in the public ablutions. When they were clean, they would spend the day roaming the city with Portia knocking on doors for a job. Any job. Doors were slammed in her face. Exhausted and dejected, they'd spent the rest of the afternoon at Jubert Park. Nkosi had even made friends with children who had finished school. Portia would watch him from the park bench, trying not to feel sorry for herself. Her optimism was wearing thin, and so was her money. She spent her every penny sparingly, but two months of sleeping on the streets was enough to get her worried. I'm just going to skip down. Um... Her husband had been right. Johannesburg was no place for a woman. But when Kosi had kicked a soccer ball under the park bench where Portia was seated, when she bent over to retrieve it, she stumbled across a handbag, which looked like it had been thrown hurriedly under the bench. Curiosity got the better of her. The bag had already been ransacked, it seems. However, the real treasure was the green ID booklet. She took possession of it and threw the bag aside. The next day, Portia assumed her new identity as Pakama Chlope. The importance of documentation. Yeah. Um, and even once you have the documentation, the constantly having to produce it. Yes. Uh, I, I speak about, you know, often my partner, also from Zim, um, you know, applied student visa, work visa, critical skills visa. And when he got his passport, when he got his ID book, it was like this weight off our shoulders because now we knew when we, you know, fly to Cape Town, you can show his ID yeah. book. When we get pulled over by the police, you can. and it's it's just that's that's what we speak about with the institutionalized xenophobia. Yeah, and it's, it's that ID book is like a lifeline. It's it it can open doors, it can close doors, and so I was just trying to show there that you know 
for Portia, it, you know, it, it opened doors for her. It, it meant she could get a job. And so a lot of the times, um, if you are not undocumented, I mean, it means that you, when you get a job, you are working illegally. It, it, it means you can't open a bank account. Mm. You know, you, you, there's so many restrictions, you know, so it means you can also get exploited. Mm. Yeah. If you, if you do get a job, you don't, you, you, if they don't decide, if they decide not to pay you the minimum wage, you take what you get because you are illegal. Mm. So yeah, that being, you know, documented means a lot to an immigrant and to finally get those papers, I understand your, your partner's relief mm. to finally have it, you know, because the trips to home affairs or something else, you know, and when I first came here, um, 2008, until I finally got my, my ID, it, it's a harrowing journey. Mm. So when you finally get your, your residence, you're like, phew. You mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and crossing that first hurdle when you go to the job interview and, yeah. and they ask you, Oh, um, are you, a, what is your ID number? Are you a South African citizen? Yeah. And they say no. And they go, sorry, we can't carry on with the interview. interview yeah. And then yeah, what do you do? Yeah. Um, do you want to read something? Okay. So I'll, I'll read from the beginning. Um, mm. the first, everybody always, whenever I'm always asked to read that first, um, <laughs> <laughs> chapter. Um, mm. and, you know, strangely enough, people like it. And I, when I wrote it, I was always like, what a boring way to start the book. But it, it actually worked somehow. Is it yeah. because maybe people identify with, with Max's garage, with the inns? I mean, chicken in, creamy in, pizza in, maybe? Or for those at least who are from? Who are no, from not even from. <laughs> I remember I was on an interview for this Radio France mm. with Laura. I think, her, yeah, Laura, I think her name is. Mm. And yeah, she also liked the starch because she says it just encapsulates the whole journey. Mm. And so, yeah, so it's, this has been, I've been asked to read here. So I'll just yeah. read okay. <laughs> from here because it seems such a, a popular mm. you know, passage. A gleaming white Toyota Quantum with black tinted windows pulled into a vacant parking space opposite Max's garage. Everyone in Bulawayo knew Max's garage. It wasn't just a fuel and service station. It was more like a busy transit terminal. Max's garage was the gateway out of Bulawayo to places like Esikotini, Gwanda, Bitebridge, and Johannesburg. In the same vein, it was also the entry point for those coming in from the southern parts of the country. It welcomed you into the bosom of the City of Kings, a city whose pulse was faltering as its entire body succumbed to an economic malaise. The inn's fast food franchise located there also ensured the place was always bustling with activity. The people who thronged there were an easy target for the con artists, petty criminals, and vendors milling around. From his car, the driver had advantage of the unfolding action around him. His interest was piqued by a woman sitting on the pavement, a child plugged to her breast, punting overripe bananas to every passerby. How many bananas did she have to sell in a day to break even? Could anyone actually survive on those takings? He shook his head in disdain. Not only was life brutally unfair, it was savagely hard. The thought that in a few minutes he would be driving out of this quagmire gave him a fleeting moment of joy. Fleeting because he would soon return to it, and invariably nothing would have improved. In fact, the city's condition would probably only worsen. This is why the numbers of mobile cargo he carried had increased in the last couple of months. They all had one thing in common, the desire to find refuge in the arms of their South African neighbour. He had listened on, in on many conversations, many that were grandiose and flowered with adjectives of prosperity. 
so similar to the one taking place in the back seat. Yeah, stunning. I just wanted to ask. Um, so I, I mean, I follow you on Twitter, and I and I see the conversations that you have with your followers. And how has this book been received in the diaspora, in particular? It's been well received. I think for you know for Zimbabweans who are in the diaspora, for them, it's like you know, thank you for telling our story. And for non-Zimbabweans who've read it, and they were like, wow, we didn't know. Mm. It was such an illuminating um, book. And, you know, they say now they look at, you know, foreigners differently, with more empathy. They're more empathetic towards the, the guy serving them, you know, in the restaurant or the woman who cleans their home. So it's now a different kind of attitude because they said they had no idea, like just, you know, the struggle mm. and, you know, behind those faces. Mm. And, you know, they don't know their stories, but now, you know, it just makes them more empathetic. So, mm. And they ask more questions, I'm sure. They ask more questions. And I mean, I've, I've heard so many people say, you know, it should actually be a set book in school mm. so that, you know, more more people are aware, especially, the you know, the kids. Um, they are aware of, of what is happening and why it's happening. Mm. You know. Thank you, Laura Wiener, my fellow broadcaster, for that fantastic, fantastic interview uh, with Sue Nyati about a really important, important book and what an incredibly important uh, African writer she is as well. Make sure you go get it. Hashtag for the love of reading. Hashtag for the love of books.